You're listening to Feral Attraction. Hosted by Metrico and Vera the Science Collie. On tonight's episode, we talk about how HIV infection might cause premature aging of cells. Our main topic is on social anxiety, what causes it, and what treatments are available for you if you happen to suffer from it. We also have a question about how to let somebody in a relationship know that you're into their partner, but not necessarily into them. Hello again, and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Vera the Science Collie. So we have some kind of exciting news to kick off the show, and it's kind of an advertisement. I do kind of apologize for that, but uh, we have a Patreon. Um, A lot of people have been asking us, you know, they want to in some way contribute to our show, and they've been asking us if we accept donations, things of that nature, and we finally decided that, you know, a Patreon would be really great for us to have. Yeah, we've really appreciated all the support and the wonderful feedback and questions that we've received. That's one fantastic way of supporting the show. But for people who want to support us in another way uh, mm-hmm. by you know, making a financial contribution to our efforts, we, we do really appreciate that because the show has been entirely self-funded thus far. And it is important to note that you know we're not going anywhere. We're not saying that we need to have donations X amount of money or to continue doing the show. We'll continue the show regardless. And you know, having a Patreon is just a way for us to make improvements. It's a way for us to purchase new studio equipment. It's a way for us to cover the cost of hosting. It's a way for us to kind of expand the you know our ability to do a podcast. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we want to be here as a resource to the furry fandom, whether or not, you know, we're making any money from this. Obviously, our objective is not to turn a profit, but just to recoup some of our expenses, maybe enable us to do a bit more, uh, more appearances at conventions, things mm-hmm. of that nature. We really would like to be able to have some, some money, uh, financial support to do those things because it enables us to reach a wider audience and help more people. So if you're interested in, you know, uh, becoming a patron, it's our Patreon is uh, patreon.com slash feral attraction altogether. No underscores, periods, or anything like that. Um, we do have three tiers. Um, it's uh, pretty basic. Um, if $1, you know, uh, is great if you can do it. $5 is great if you can do it. $10 is great if you can do it. So please give it a, you know, chance. Look at it if you, and if you're at all interested in contributing, contributing, I can't say that we're contributing. Contributing. I had the contra code in my head. Or if you want to be our tribute at a con, I mean, that works too. If you want to volunteer as tribute, that's also good. The odds probably are in your favor. But, you know, it's it's something that we thought would be, you know, great to help us kind of recover the cost because running a podcast at times can be a little bit pricey and, you know, gathering all the resources, sourcing the materials that we reference, things of that nature, this would help us, you know, and go a long way in ensuring that, you know, we're not operating this at a substantial loss. Exactly. So anyhow, that's the advertisement. Um, you know, if, if you have any questions, you know, let us know. Um, we do have goals listed, so if you're interested at all in where the funds are going, I guarantee you it's going to studio equipment. Um, Koji just bought a whole bunch of foam to soundproof the uh, room that we do the recording in. So <laughs> I just can't hang it properly. It's been falling off the walls for days. So, you know, <laughs> getting some, you know, s- tape, things like that, that will help us, you know, to improve the quality 
you know, it goes a long way. So anywho. Yeah, just it's a bit of a surprise that Koji's not good at finding things that are well hung, but, you know, being oh, a fox and all. Oh, get out. Okay. That's too much, man. Well, that's our show. <laughs> and that's a wrap. Be well. Uh, so. Oh. Oh, you glared at me. I said your catchphrase. Uh-oh. <laughs> Co- Cody's in trouble. Metrico's very protective. <laughs> My brand. Your brand. He's going to brand you in another way if you keep that up, Fox. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Mm, I wonder what it would look like. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> now, moving on, it's there wasn't there were a few articles that recently came out in the last month that Vera and I thought were incredibly interesting. And... You know, it, since you are the virologist, I'll kind of let you go more into detail about it. Yeah, I was kind of going to pounce on this one because this is literally, you know, what my PhD is in. But I thought it was a really cool story and it kind of addresses, uh, you know, some people, I think, inappropriately treat HIV like it's no big deal these days. Because, you know, it used to be obviously in the 80s and 90s, it was kind of this major killer. Mm-hmm. If you got it, it was a death sentence. And so, you know, people really saw it as this being this kind of this this plague, this scourge on the gay community. But now that we have highly active antiretroviral therapy and other uh, means of really treating and coping uh, with HIV, we can get, you know, mm-hmm. an undetectable viral load and we can make it kind of this, this chronic condition that you can live with. I think some people don't really get, uh, appreciate it as the, you know, still kind of the de- deleterious effect it can have on the body to be infected with this virus, which is you know, constantly with you for life. Mm-hmm. And so there were some studies that uh, that came out. This one was published in Molecular Cell, and it was really just addressing how HIV actually uh, influences cells in the body. And what these uh, researchers did is they looked at 137 people who had HIV and 44 people who didn't as a control group. And what they did is they compared something called the DNA methylation patterns that these individuals had in their cells. Now, uh, that's a bit technical, but basically DNA methylation is a measure of cellular aging. Uh, When uh, cells are differentially methylated, it can actually uh, really basically influence what your uh, biological age appears to be. This was an issue, if you think back to when Dolly the sheep was cloned. Uh, Dolly the sheep died very prematurely because when Dolly was cloned, the researchers didn't really account for the methylation patterns of the donor cell that was used to, to clone uh, Dolly. And so uh, basically the sheep was prematurely aged because the methylation patterns were incorrect. So in this case, HIV is kind of doing a similar thing where it's uh, prematurely uh, causing cells to age. And so the researchers found that these cells were essentially five years older biologically than they ought to have been uh, as a result of the HIV infection on average. So if you think about that, you know, HIV is kind of shortening your lifespan, even even if it's not killing you in the moment and killing you in the next couple of years, it is still a chronic condition. And you know, the researchers found that it could actually also increase your chance of mortality by 19%. So, you know, it's still a very serious thing to keep in mind. And it is important to note that with this being, you know, fairly recent research, I mean, it, back in the 80s, back in the 90s, you know, having AIDS was a one to two year, you're gone. You know, it was a very quick killer. So it is important for us to continue doing research into HIV, into AIDS, because, you know, with the with the information that we're finding, you know, we're able to prolong your life, but it's looking like it's not going to be the, you know, full extended lifespan that you might have if you were negative. So it is important to continue practicing, you know, to, to employ safer sex practices, to be well informed about your sexual health and you know, just just bear that in mind, because as more and more research comes out, 
you know, it, we're finding more ways that HIV can impact you beyond just, oh, and welcome to AIDS. Right. I mean, there's AIDS-related dementia. There's mm-hmm. other things. So you don't don't uh, just treat it like, oh, this is no big deal. And if you want more information on that, we would strongly encourage you to check out our full three-and-a-half-hour-long marathon on safer sex and STI prevention. Uh, and you can look at the show notes if you want just the, the Cliff Notes version of that podcast, which I might recommend because it's kind of a <laughs> kind of a doozy. But uh, the TLDR mm-hmm. on that is consider seeking a prescription for Truvada, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, if you are going to be highly active uh, in a non-monogamous fashion mm-hmm. as a, a gay or bisexual man, uh, because that's your highest risk group for uh, HIV transmission. Especially if you're in a receptive anal sex partner, definitely you want to be on Truvada. And also, con- you know, consider uh, perfect condom use. And if you want to know what that is and what we mean by perfect condom use, again, please refer to the show notes or the podcast that we did on safer sex and STI prevention. Now, I actually did have somebody reach out to me, and I wanted to see if you had any ideas about this. Um, Time for me to be put on the spot, everyone. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> you did this to me last week. It's my turn now. So... So, Petrico, what is sociopathy? <laughs> I don't know. What is sociopathy? <laughs> anyway. You know, they, they, they're lower income. And so it's difficult for them to find Trivada where, you know, they might be on Medicaid and uh, their Medicaid doesn't cover Trivada. So they were curious about what they could do in order to possibly source it. Yeah. So in that situation, again, I've mentioned this on the podcast previously, but Gilead, the manufacturer of Truvada, has two different programs uh, available to provide uh, people with access to Truvada. One of them is a copay uh, program. So Truvada, uh, the company is willing to make, uh, Gilead, the company that makes Truvada is willing to pay your copays. So if you have insurance that does cover it, but you still have like a 30 or $60 copay every month, and that would be cost prohibitive for you, uh, Gilead is willing to cover that for you. So you go in, your insurance pays their share, Gilead covers your tab, and you get the medication for free. That's if you're insured and it's covered. And now, if you're not insured or you're underinsured, as would be the case with your friend, Gilead has a second program that actually just gives you the drug and doesn't charge you for it. That one's a bit harder to get. There's a bit more paperwork involved with participating in that one, but all the information is available on Gilead's website. You can just Google Gilead copay program and you'll see both programs will pop up. Uh, to Gilead, I think payment assistance, they have some weird name for it, but mm-hmm. you just Google Gilead copay, it'll come right up and then you can fill out the paperwork and hopefully get on Truvada for a cost reduced or no cost uh, way. Right. And even though we have mentioned it in the past, I thought it would be kind of cool to go back and revisit because it is an important topic where I know that a lot of people struggle, especially in the United States, with insurance, with being properly insured or having a good level of insurance. So, And I won't lie, Truvada is a super expensive drug. If you just look at the sticker price, it's like $1,400 a month. So obviously no, mm-hmm. one's, no one's paying that sticker price. We're not asking anyone to do that. Right. That's absurd. But So, you know, do some research. And if you have any questions, it's I would recommend, you know, writing Vero an email or hitting him up on Twitter just to, you know, for some follow-up. It's, I'll be honest, my knowledge in this is going to be immensely you know vera is going to be the better resource is what i'm saying so i appreciate everybody coming to me and asking these questions but i will as i have been in the past refer you to bureau so or refer you to this now (laughs) so anywho um Today's topic is something that actually kind of hits a little bit close to home for me and this is the last week in mental health month and you know, it's all been kind of, all of these topics have been building on each other. Everything is kind of interconnected when it comes to your mental health. And 
Tonight's topic of social anxiety is the one that I feel is probably the most prevalent amongst the furry fandom. Yeah, and honestly, I think both Metrico and I, uh, speaking just for us, has each struggled with social anxiety in our own way. You might not be able to tell from the fact that I'm now uh, a furry with a podcast and I'm fairly active in the community and I'm very outgoing, but I used to be an incredibly shy, introverted person, Mm -hmm. and I had really crippling social anxiety all through middle school and high school. I didn't really come out of my shell until uh, probably midway through college, and even then not fully until a few years ago, I would say. So... You know, social anxiety is something that I've uh, always dealt with and kind of managed to get myself through. I've dealt with it and I've kind of gotten over it. And I also had very severe phone anxiety. So I had a phone phobia and a phone anxiety that I had for a long, long time. And as someone who's self-employed and has to make business phone-related phone calls constantly, that was a serious issue that I had to get over. And so, you know, hopefully we can kind of talk to you about some of the things that we've done to get over our own uh, social anxiety and just kind of, you know, make you feel like you're not alone because a lot of people think this is something that only they have to deal with. And that's really not the case at all. It's a very, very common uh, issue that a lot of, especially a lot of furries who might not be used to socializing very much. A lot of, a lot of furries do have to face. Indeed. So with social anxiety, a lot of, a lot of furries have, you know, anxiety issues, but social anxiety is one that Everybody has. Everybody suffers from anxiety, and everybody social uh, suffers from social anxiety. And it's important to understand what social anxiety actually is. And we can do the literal definition, which we'll include in the show notes. Social anxiety is when you just have a sense of dread about any kind of social interaction or having to speak in front of people or present things in front of people. It's, a, it's where you're concerned about being judged negatively, regardless of whether it's actually the case. So when you suffer, when you suffer from social anxiety, you're kind of what Vera was you know, talking about earlier just now. Afraid to call people on the phone, afraid to go to crowded places, afraid to speak in front of the class, things like that. And social anxiety is... In all fairness, it's not a bad thing altogether. Since everybody experiences it, it allows for us to remain sensitive, really, to the thoughts, to the experiences of other people. Social anxiety can act as a secondary conscious for some people, where they're unsure if what they're doing is acceptable or not. It allows for people to stop and think about well, what is the way, you know, I'm doing this, how is it going to be perceived? Oh God. It, it gives people a moment for thought. And it really only becomes an issue when it interferes with your day-to-day life, where you are, where I was, I, I was, I didn't go outside of my house for two months once because I could not bear the thought of having to deal with other people. I was a little bit worse than than <laughs> Vera was in being phone shy. I wouldn't call people. I wouldn't text people. I wouldn't if I didn't know somebody. I wouldn't speak with them. And it wasn't because I was afraid of them. It was more I just didn't know where the interaction was going. I was I was afraid of not being able to relate. And mind you, this was many 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 years ago. And hopefully, I've gotten better about that since then. Since I spend most of my day on Twitter. But (laughs) social anxiety can be incredibly difficult to diagnose, we'll say, to figure out where your areas are. 
and to really find a way to resolve. And it's important if it is impacting you on a regular basis where you're not able to function on a in, in normal society, we'll say, where you're just so terrified of the thoughts of other people judging you that you're afraid to go to the grocery store to buy milk. Social anxiety can be that for some people. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a point that hits really close to home for me. And frankly, where you live in Brooklyn, going to the grocery store to buy milk actually might be a valid fear. Let's just get that out of the way. But <laughs> Well, <laughs> I mean, okay, so, so everybody shit talks about where I live. It's maybe not the best area, but... I've never, I mean, sometimes the fireworks aren't really fireworks. We'll just, we'll say it like that. But I've never really had an issue, granted. To be fair, you look scary as fuck. No one's going to mess with you. You're a, you're a scary red panda. Yeah, pretty much. When you mean to look scary. <laughs> you're a cutie pie. Aww. Aww. See. He does kind of have resting I'm going to fuck you up face, though. That is a thing. <laughs> That's a mode you have, panda. Unfortunately, I do. Uh, it's, it's, people have resting bitchy face. I have resting I will murder you and your family down to the third generation face. I have I have straight up like resting Old Testament Yahweh face where it's just the ten plagues will be visited upon you if you don't get out of my way. So, and it's not intentional. I've actually been asked, this, this contributed to my social anxiety. I've been asked by teachers, even my mother way back when, you know, 10, 15 years now at this point, asked me, why don't you ever smile? Why do you always look unhappy? I get that too. People say, oh, Vero, I can't read you. You I can never read your face. It's a very weird thing. And so you you become very self-conscious about that. I I know I did where I had, I felt the need where I had to smile all the time and it was unnatural and it made my face hurt and I don't like smiling uh, unless it's. I'm legitimately smiling about something. So I looked like a creepy ventriloquist doll where I just dee, 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 and then people thought that I was even weirder. So hey, my problem, I just get lost in thought a lot of the time. So I've got that like thousand mile stare going on and people get really freaked out by that. I do that on the subway sometimes where I just glance and I realize maybe 10 minutes after the fact that I've been looking at somebody the entire time and I feel really bad because they're just looking at me. They're like, oh my God, this white guy is going to kill me. He's going to murder me to the third generation. Oh my God. And I'm just really there sitting. Most of the time I'm thinking about story ideas or butts. You know, mostly butts, mostly butts though. <laughs> I'll be real. <sighs> or, you know, just thinking about random nonsense I, I i allow myself to drift because on the subway it doesn't who cares i'm stuck there for like 30 minutes so whatever but Kill me. for social pretty much for social anxiety you know you become very cognizant of these issues you become very cognizant of these non-issues really of how you present yourself to the outside world how people perceive you and how people are judging you even when a lot of the time, none of that is actually happening. So for me, I, I reference one book and I will, I'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, it's a workbook that I actually used and it's called Shyness and Social Anxiety Workbook, uh, Proven Step-by-Step Techniques for Overcoming Your Fear. And this is by Martin Antony and Richard Swenson. And it's been highly lauded, highly recommended. I've used it And it really helped me to ground myself and to come to terms with a lot of the crap, the negativity that I was feeling and put myself out there more. So I highly recommend it. But, and that is where I'm sourcing a lot of my information from. So you're getting kind of a condensed 
version of that book. (laughs) (laughs) So some of the symptoms of social anxiety, we'll break them down into three different groups. Um, Different sensations that you can experience when you're undergoing social anxiety, as we'll say. You might blush a lot. You might start sweating. Your heart might just start pounding and racing out of control. Um, You might shake. You might not be able to breathe. You might feel faint. You might get a dry mouth. Things that typically go with being nervous, with being anxious about something. Now apply that to, oh my god, I have to talk to this cashier at the grocery store. You know, your palms are sweaty, your knees start shaking, mom's spaghetti, you know, things like that. So, don't give me that look, Koji. What the hell's spaghetti? It's M&M. Oh. Does it have meatballs? Uh, it, it's meatless balls. Oh. If you know what I mean. Oh, merd. <laughs> so, but the thing is, is everybody will experience this at some point everybody will have these sensations when they have to interact with other people when they make a mistake in public but it's important to recognize okay this is the reaction that's happening this is what i'm experiencing learning what these sensations are learning how to identify and they're different for everybody some people get a dry mouth some people just start sweating profusely and it's it's to the point where it's almost comical for some people where their just face looks like they've been through a rainstorm. You want to identify what your specific sensations are. And you can find ways to recognize, okay, so I'm starting to get a little bit shaky, so I'm getting a little bit anxious, so all right, I need to kind of take a few deep breaths and get back on track. Because a lot of the time, these can completely derail you. Oh my god, I'm starting to blush. Oh my god, they're going to see me blush. Oh god, no, I'm blushing more. Oh god, it's an endless cycle. So you want to identify the sensations that you experience, and that way you can realize, okay, so this is what's happening. I'm still in control, though. Um, There are also some thoughts, and this is really what kills people. You know, their, their ability to interact kills their social socialness i don't know how to say it (laughs) kills their ability to be sociable how about that things like i don't want to speak i I don't want to say this because they're going to hate me or uh, you know i don't belong in this place it's too nice you know i i don't want to i drop this on the floor and i don't want to pick it up because i'm just going to mess it up more i don't have anything interesting to say so they're going to hate me and if you uh, listened to our podcast last week, these might sound kind of familiar to you as cognitive distortions, which is exactly mm-hmm. what they are, basically. Social anxiety is just a very specific type of a cognitive disorder. And the thing is, is going back to this, everybody experiences social anxiety, but when it becomes so drastic where you can't function and you're afraid to go outside, you're afraid to even look out the window that's when it becomes a a real cognitive distortion. Right. But, you know, if we think about these examples that Metrico gave out, you know, really, we're going to get to this a bit later, but, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy can be super helpful when dealing with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at they're going to hate me. That is an example of catastrophizing. It's an example of fortune telling, right? Those are, neither of those is particularly constructive. Mm -hmm. I don't belong here is another example that could potentially be thought of as catastrophizing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to mess it up even more. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you want to look out for these because 
you know, also I won't have anything interesting to say, another self-fulfilling prophecy. These are things that if you if you say these things to yourself, they're going to be very damaging because you're going to make them come true. Mm-hmm. And that's how social anxiety gets reinforced, is you tell yourself you're going to perform terribly, and then you perform terribly. And then you look at yourself and say, see, I am really bad at this, right? right. And that's exactly what you want to, you want to break that cycle because that's a really mm-hmm. unfortunate place to put yourself in. And it's really going to destroy your self-esteem. So... It's important to identify what your thoughts are when it comes to these things. It's important to recognize what patterns have been established for you. So you can break those patterns to where you can hear these thoughts and just say, well, fuck you, buddy. I'm going to be awesome. So just learn to identify those. And we'll get to that a little bit later. We're just kind of glossing over right now what it feels like, what it looks like different common patterns that you might experience. There are also some common behaviors that are pretty typical of people that suffer from social anxiety. Um, Kind of like me, avoiding social situations, not going outside, being entirely agoraphobic, you know. Right, exactly. That's very common, the avoidance. Um, Another one is if you actually do bother show up, you kind of avoid while you're there. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of staying on the periphery of a social situation. Being a wallflower. Yeah, not really engaging, staying towards the edge of a crowd, not making eye contact, not participating in conversation, mm-hmm. just kind of standing there. You're there, but you're not really there. Mm-hmm. There, It's avoidance on different scales. It's... I used to be that way really heavily, where I really was just a wallflower. People would forget that I would be there. And it was actually rather comical because they would tell me about these things that I went to. I'm like, oh, I was there. And they're like, no, you weren't. And then they'd see pictures. And it's like, oh, you're all the way in the back. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> Can't miss me. Apparently you can. <laughs> Another thing, and this is something that I've encountered with other people, not, not necessarily myself, is the need to apologize just effusively, excessively, just constant apologies. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. You know. They, they say something, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, I'm sorry, please don't please don't be bad. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Constant apologizing is a form of social anxiety because you're afraid of offending other people and making people upset with you. Or you're just Canadian. That's also possible. <laughs> and, we don't offend any of our Toronto uh, listeners. A really good way to deal with this is to try to convert your apologies into a thank you. So... Instead of saying, like, sorry, I'm such a drag, say, thank you for being patient with me. Mm-hmm. Because then they feel appreciated, and you're not being negative about yourself. So they won't feel awkward. That is a good approach, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's actually one of the things we're going to talk about when we get to the cognitive behavioral therapy section, right. is how to actually undo some of these things. Uh, and that's, that's one really great strategy. Indeed. Uh, another one, and I've limited this, this is, by the way, all of these are by no means exhaustive lusts because I could spend literal hours talking about this. But another very common behavior is always looking for reassurance from others. Oh, I think that I'm really bad at this. Oh, no, you're great. Oh, no, you're good. You see this a lot with people that are just starting with art, whether that's painting or music or writing where they're always looking for that reassurance because they don't have that that intrinsic self-value right or if somebody says hey come to the firm meet and you're like oh are you really sure you want me there are you really sure that i you, you think i should sh- you show up like do you really think i i don't know like would people be okay with me being there oh but only if you're okay with it are you are you sure you're okay with it i'm so sorry to bother you do you think there'll be room for me i'm not mm-hmm. really sure I, you know that kind of thing can definitely mm-hmm. be a sign that you're being a bit anxious you're looking for an excuse not to have to show up right 
Right. And that that's actually a good way of defining social anxiety. Social anxiety is finding an excuse to not do something with somebody else. <laughs> so identify what behaviors you are. And it might, because these are not exhaustive lists, it might be something that's not here. For me personally, my behavior was an extreme form of avoidance. And again, that was really not healthy. <laughs> And my personal strategy was just throwing myself into my academic studies and basically making sure I didn't have time to socialize. So I always had the excuse of, oh, no, I've got way too much work to do. I can't go out. And so that was my approach is I just basically <laughs> systematically eliminated free time from my life. So I had no opportunity to socialize and therefore it kind of wasn't even an issue. That was pretty similar to mine, actually, where, oh, I can't do this. I'm too busy. Oh, I can't do this. I'm too busy. Oh, I can't do this. I'm too busy. And I would make up reasons to be busy. Oh, well, I really got to rewrite this paper when I knew that I didn't. But I did anyway. That way I could just stay in and watch television and not have to talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I really need to read this chapter of my textbook that no one else is actually going to bother to read. Mm -hmm. but I needed to read it for some reason, right? Mm -hmm. I would finish entire books of reading. For, for classes that didn't have to be done for four months just to avoid having to deal with other people. And, and it was really funny because a lot of the books that I had to read, I had to get from the library because I didn't buy them. And then I'd have to take them back to the library and I didn't want to do that. So I got late fees and I don't want to deal. <laughs> it was very dangerous for me. <laughs> but there are a lot of triggers. And, you know, we use that phrase, you know, that the word trigger as something, you know, that, that can sometimes be taken a little bit out of context, perhaps. These are different scenarios, we'll say, rather than trigger, that social anxiety can flare up, that can cause it to be a major issue for you, especially if you suffer from it in a severe fashion. Like I used to, like Vero did, to a very slightly lesser extent. I mean, you, you still went outside, right? I did, yes. I, I, I opened a window. That was my... That was my outside. <laughs> but I found that a lot of people have have extreme anxiety, extreme social anxiety, I should say. For example, if you're going on a date, whether it's your first date, your 50th date, your 50th first date, it doesn't really matter how experienced you are or how well you know the other person that you're going out with. It could be a friend, could be a lover, could be your mother. And frankly, you know, some of that anxiety with going on a date can be justified. We're not saying that all social anxiety is bad. Right. Uh, as we talked about last week, anxiety is really just like a warning light in your car. It, mm -hmm. it means you're in a situation that is making you uh, uncomfortable. It's making you feel like you're maybe pushing your boundaries. You're slightly outside of your comfort zone. And you have to think about whether the situation that's causing the anxiety should be in your comfort zone or maybe it actually is something you're not super comfortable with. If it's your first mm -hmm. time going on a date with somebody... That is outside of your comfort zone. It's totally reasonable to be feeling anxious. Don't feel like you're, you're bad or mm -hmm. broken or wrong for feeling anxious in that situation. We don't mean that, that at all. There are situations that could potentially trigger it. We don't mean inappropriately trigger it. It could be perfectly appropriate mm -hmm. in certain cases. Right. And like I said before, everybody will have some level of social anxiety. And it's not intrinsically bad. It's only when it causes you to, oh, well, I don't want... You know, let's say you've been interested in this person for months and months and months, and finally they're just... I want to go out on a date with you. Oh my God. Why haven't we done this? And you just crumble where internally you're like, yes, but externally you're like, I have to read a chap 
and then never speak to them again. Right, yeah. Social anxiety rises to the level of being really a problem for you if it's actually interfering with your ability to function in life. If it's causing you to miss opportunities, if it's causing you to avoid situations that you otherwise would enjoy, that's when social anxiety mm -hmm. rises to the level of being a real problem. So in situations like a job interview or calling somebody on the phone like Vera and I used to have to deal with or going to a party or a con or somebody invites you over to their house for a weekend party fuck fest, you know, these are all things that involve other people that you might find that your social anxiety causes you to miss out on. Could be even as far as talking to somebody, starting a conversation with a stranger, getting to know somebody on Twitter. Being afraid to message somebody outside of saying hi because you're afraid that you're going to say something that's going to upset them. These are all areas that you can look into and see if the extent that your anxiety is, is leading you is too much and too much of a burden for you, I should say, where you're just unable to function as you want to. For things that are more performance-based... Things like giving a speech in front of a class for kind of like I was going shopping or to the movies, whether you're alone or with other people or dropping something in a public place. You know that when you go out to a restaurant and somebody drops a plate or a tray or glass and then everybody claps and it's embarrassing for that person, that fear of that happening to you, causing you to never go to a restaurant ever again probably not a good thing and frankly i act, i still have this to some extent i do have an anxiety about eating at restaurants by myself that's totally an anxiety that i still have see since i've been alone like i i don't have since living in new york just don't give a shit <laughs> pretty much at this point <laughs> there's too many people for people to stare and care about you i've actually been at a diner at three in the morning with just myself four waiters and the owner. And it was a very odd situation because everybody was crowded around me and everybody really was watching me, but I was just like, I don't care, I gotta eat, you know? <laughs> New York City is weird where a lot of the things that you do will be alone. And while, yes, I do prefer going with other people, there are times where I do feel self-conscious. Uh, going to see Zootopia, I want to see it alone. I do that movies by myself. Well, before I was with Vero, I would go to movies alone all the time. Well, for me, it was a little bit different. I don't mind going to movies alone, but I did somewhat mind going to see Zootopia alone just Aww. because... Vivi! <laughs> Why did you ask me? I didn't ask. Well, I did, but you were busy. That's true. What were we doing that day? I think we were in uh, Virginia seeing Zootopia, right? Oh my god, yeah, we were completely gone. Yeah. Um, it's fine. Uh, We abandoned our panda. No, we just hate him. Yeah, it's fine. We hate the panda. Aww. The reason that I was self-conscious wasn't wasn't for anything other than I was going to see a kids movie, and I am a older, fat, chubby white guy, like going to see a kids movie surrounded by children. That doesn't scream stranger danger. <laughs> so, Metrico the pedo panda. No, <clears throat> no, no. Let's not even no. Mm, 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 mm. No, I'm I'm taking a sip of tea in protest. But in all seriousness, you know, you shouldn't allow for the way that 
for the fear that other people might be judging you to interfere and going out and doing things that you really want to do. For the fear of making a mistake, if you're reading out loud, I love when I'm with somebody and we're in bed and we just read to each other. We have a book and I'll read a few pages, they'll read a few pages. You can't let the fear of, oh my god, I might mispronounce this word. I mean, hell, how many words have I mispronounced in this show tonight alone where I'm just like, I can either crumble up in pity and self-defeat or I can just make fun of myself and move on. Yeah, I mean, I used to have a problem with public speaking. At least I started out that way. And I used to hate the sound of my own voice because I have a, a bit of a lisp. I'm sure all of you listeners have noticed by now. But Really? Uh, ha. All the lispeners. All the lispeners, yes. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, like, I ended up being a TA. I ended up having to teach. I taught a class of like 300 students at Columbia University. Like, I had to do it. It just had to happen. There's no way to, there's no way to do that without just getting good at speaking and getting over it. So I got over it. And obviously, I don't mind public speaking now because I've got a podcast. So there you go. And, and frankly, people don't really mind the sound of my voice. I've just gotten used to the fact that yes, I've got a list, but most people don't seem to give a shit. So I'll go with that. For me, I actually really didn't speak that much growing up. I, I was a very quiet kid, and it really wasn't until I got into debate and started doing musical theater that I really started speaking in classes, or really to anybody. I, 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 was a, I really was a wallflower. Like I just was there, and then I was gone, and people didn't notice. So it wasn't social anxiety or really anything i think it was just because i didn't have anything interesting to say which in itself is a form of social anxiety so it really was in the end because apparently i do have interesting things to say but maybe i don't know uh i get told a lot that people laugh uh i have a co-worker that told me last night that he enjoys working with me because i make him laugh and what's strange is that I never set out to do it. It's apparently my life makes them laugh, which is kind of great. <laughs> but at the same time, it's kind of like hmm. about that. Uh, hmm. What exactly is it that you're laughing at here? Are we going to have a problem? Yeah, we, we do. It's, <laughs> he talks all night long. It's really annoying. Anywho... I'm not one to talk at work at all, really. I just want to sit there and cry. I feel like maybe that may be a bit of a furry thing, but I think a lot of furries, when they get to work, they don't actually want to interact with their human coworkers. They just kind of want to, like, get through the day. You know? <laughs> I don't really do. Yeah. I have, I have nothing I want to say to them. It's, <laughs> and I've, I've made this point several times, um, and I'll go into it here because... It, it, it's social anxiety just to an extent. Not really for me. It's not social anxiety. It's It's... I don't care. It's it's kind of a dick thing to say, I know, but I'm there to collect a paycheck. I'm not there to find my new best friend. This isn't the real world. This isn't Big Brother. I don't anticipate finding anything there. I just want to go there, get paid, go home. Because I have so much going on in my life. I don't need the, the inner office drama, which is all anybody ever wants to talk about, at least in my current place of employment. Oh, did you hear what so-and-so said? Oh, did you hear what Sally? I, I don't care. <laughs> I don't. Don't call me. I'm not at work. I'm not getting paid. And for some people, going to work is a pleasure. For some people, it is really a second place, a second home. It's my second family. I love them all to bits. I do anything. I die for the company. But not me. Mm-hmm. And this might be something that, you know, happens a little bit more maybe in New York City where... 
we work to kind of live here and we don't live here to work, if that makes sense. For sure. <laughs> so New York City is kind of an oddball. Any any city where there's a high cost of living, you don't always like your coworkers. You don't always want to talk with your coworkers because sometimes you take what you get and you just got to suck it up, buttercup. Well, you know, I guess for Mexico, it's not really social anxiety thing. For me, it kind of was a little bit when I was finishing mm-hmm. grad school. There were people on my floor that I just felt like I had nothing in common with them. We were like from completely different planets. And like, I just, I didn't mm-hmm. really know how to participate in their conversations. I got, I felt really uncomfortable uh, in those situations. And mm-hmm. so I would just, you know, I'd be in the lunchroom one eat my lunch and there'd be a bunch of people I didn't really want to interact with and felt kind of anxious about interacting with them. Cause I felt like, well, unless we talk about science, which we could do, mm-hmm. I just like, I had nothing, no way to engage with these people. So, you know, I would just wear headphones and I'd, I'd either listen to a podcast or pretend to be listening to a podcast and I just wear headphones. Maybe it put me into, you know, do not disturb mode, basically. That is actually a very hardcore form of social anxiety, where if you feel the need to just be on your phone or listening to music all the time, that's that's good. But if you're doing that to avoid interaction with other people, that is a very hardcore form of social anxiety. Oh, I was hardcore in that particular situation. <laughs> that lunchroom was a, oh man... I mean, uh, to an extent, I, I do sometimes struggle with the whole relating to people thing. I'm much better at relating to furries. I, I will say that a good majority, about, uh, yeah, a very heavy percentage of my friends tend to also overlap with the fandom, and I think that's fine. I still interact with people that aren't furries. I mean, my new roommates are not furries, and they're chill, but... I'm not going to lie, pretty much 98% of my friends are furries. I'm total for old furry trash. That's pretty point. much where I'm at as yeah. well. <laughs> but for me, I think that's fine. Uh, I'm totally cool with it. I've accepted my fate. I'm down with it. I'm going to furry hell. I am going to yiff in hell. I'm fine with that. We're for fags. It's cool. Yeah. Um, but for me, part of it maybe goes down to the whole relating thing, but the other part goes to... I'm not there to make friends, and that's more of an emotional bandwidth sort of thing where I don't have the time to get invested in other people and other people's lives at that point because I'm more focused on the fact that we had an entire campus that just crashed, none of their servers are online, the internet, the ISP isn't work all sorts of crap and they just want to talk to me oh my god you won't believe what Becky had to say about me oh my god Becky I don't care I really could give no fucks. My field of fucks is barren, like my womb. I will never give birth to a fuck. (laughs) It's never going to happen. Um. I am... No, no. Please stop. So, a little bit different there, but... Social anxiety can play a part if you're afraid of not being able to relate with your coworkers, especially if you're in the fandom and you're afraid of, oh my god, what if they find out that I'm a furry? Oh my god, what if I say something wrong? Or, oh my god, what if I'm in inner office chat and I use a colon three? Oh my god, they're going to think I'm furry trash! <laughs> well, no, it's true, though. Being in the closet about being furry or being mm-hmm. gay or trans or bisexual or any any kind of non-conforming thing, mm-hmm. being closeted can be a major source of social anxiety because you have this fear of being found out. Right. And that can be incredibly troubling. It can be... Especially, I mean, going back to when I was in the closet, you're afraid of saying the wrong thing. You're afraid of, oh, oh my God, what if I lisp? What if I look at somebody a certain way? What if I 
you're so afraid of what you might say, what you might do, what might be perceived as being gay or furry or potentially, you know, trans. Uh, you, you want to make... It's unfortunate, and I'm, I'm kind of speaking from the heart on this. It is unfortunate that people do have to be in the closet about who they are, about who they identify as, especially in a workplace, because that can become an incredibly hostile environment. I've worked in several locations where all of a sudden it goes from being a normal conversation about work to just homophobic epithets and transphobia. I had a conversation with somebody at my current place who is fortunately no longer there, who was railing against uh people uh trans individuals not being able to use the bathroom of their choice was well you know i don't want them going into my locker room it's for the kids and just complete and total garbage spewing from their mouth think of the children yeah really it was very much so think of the children and i'm just like like the children are the ones who give the least fuck yeah i mean if anything they're gonna be like daddy why are they in here oh okay who cares I mean, it doesn't matter. They won't even ask the question, probably. I'm, if they do, it's <laughs> if they do, it's going to be just like, why are, you know, why is that? Oh well, no, those laugh. Fine. Oh, ha, ha, it's yeah. so funny that you know. Don't he's, worry he's about in the restroom. When Who they cares? say think of the children, what they really mm-hmm. mean is think of the awkward conversation I'm going to have to have with my child, and God forbid I need to have any awkward conversation with my child. They're my little angel. Everything <laughs> should be perfect all the time. Yeah, I mean, I still make the joke that my parents never gave me the talk about sex. Never. I I didn't know what circumcision was until after they disowned me. Oh, wow. (laughs) No, they really didn't talk about genitals in any way, shape, or form. They were terrified of it. But anywho, so social anxiety itself, these are just common ways that it can be triggered in you. These are common places that you might encounter it, and they're... It's important to recognize how social anxiety for you presents itself, because then you can begin to find ways to resolve it. Yeah, and that's really the meat and potatoes of uh, the episode, I think, today. Yeah. It's actually, you know, what can you do to address your social mm-hmm. anxiety? And a lot of this is going to harken back to our episode on cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive distortions that we mm-hmm. recorded last week. But we're going to go through some of that stuff in a more specific context to anxiety for you right now. But again, we encourage you to go back and listen to that episode because it really ties together very nicely with this. These are kind of like a paired set, I would say. Yeah, it's it's. I, I do think that social anxiety takes parts from everything that we've gone over this month, kind of puts it together because social anxiety as a whole is an incredibly complex thing that people have to deal with. It's an incredibly complex disorder. Yeah, we're also going to uh, link you to a really great uh, British page on shyness and social phobia that mm-hmm. uh, covers uh, some really, uh, basically, it's a workbook. It's an online online workbook mm-hmm. you can go through to help you address some of your social anxiety, too. Uh, but the first thing is really this basic, hardcore cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's questioning your emotions, questioning what's going on with you. So the real key to this is that basically nobody gives a flying fuck about you. <laughs> and that's actually a really empowering thing when you embrace it. We're going to do a full episode on this eventually. But the... <laughs> The, embracing the fact that no one gives a flying fuck about you is really powerful because when you realize, oh, people don't actually think about me very often. When I fuck up or do something awkward, people are going to think, oh, he did something awkward. And then five minutes later, they will completely forget about it because they got a new tweet that they had to deal with or some other shit's going on in their life. Most people don't give a flying fuck. That's just the truth. 
So when you're panicking about the fact that your armpits are sweaty or the fact that you forgot to brush your teeth or whatever it is that you're panicking about and be making you super anxious and socially uh, awkward, chances are 98% of people aren't going to notice and the 2% who do notice are going to immediately forget. So just don't worry so much. That's kind of the basic thing. So question, question that really you know, major self uh, kind of consciousness that you've got going on that's, that's triggering your social uh, anxiety. Because a lot of the time that's just not based on any kind of reality. Precisely. I mean, living in a large city like we do, there are a lot of times where I completely fuck up in the middle of a large crowd. Times where the umbrella that I'm carrying, I drop, or maybe I trip over something, maybe I stub my toe, maybe I, you know, kick something. Uh, there are so many ways that you can make a mistake. You have to not worry about the mistakes that you make and stop worrying about, oh, well, people might look at me funny or they might laugh or they might think that I'm clumsy or a klutz or stupid or whatever. It doesn't matter because people are going to go on with their day and chances are they're never going to remember you. Even if they're your coworkers, they might joke about it a little bit, but that's the nature of the game, unfortunately. If you're close with somebody, if you work side by side with somebody, you're going to have to deal with some jokes every now and then, but more than likely, they're just never going to think about it again, especially if it's something as teeny tiny as, oh my God, you know, I was drinking a little bit, and, you know, I dribbled a little bit out of my mouth and I got on my shirt. Oh my God, everybody's going to notice and they're going to think that I'm a slob or something to that effect. Nine times out of 10, they're not even going to notice. And that one time they're not going to say anything because everybody does that and it happens to everybody at some point. So they're just going to be like, oh, hey, cool. Something spilled on a shirt. Who cares? What's next? A good reality check on this is like, pay attention to yourself. Like, do you recall every little embarrassing thing that any people around you do? Most people, you really mm-hmm. don't. You might even be hard-pressed to remember the last time you witnessed someone else doing something embarrassing. Because while these things happen all the time, they're not memorable because they happen all the time. And no one no one has that much mental bandwidth to remember, oh, yeah, I remember that time Johnny, you know, accidentally spilled his, his coffee at, at work that one day. Like, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> no one remembers that, you know. People aren't that judgmental of thinking about you nearly as much as you think they are. And something that I recommend in dealing with situations like this, especially in a workplace environment, is, oh, you know, we'll go back, you know, oh, my God, do you remember that time where Sally spilled her coffee all over herself? Oh, my God, there's Sally. Hey, Sally, we were talking about that time that you spilled coffee all over yourself. If you find yourself in that situation where people continue to bring up negative situations, talk about, oh, yeah, well, that happened, but I also cranked out that report that day. I didn't let it stop me. You can take your failures. You can take your mistakes and you can turn them into strength by saying, I don't stop because I make a mistake. I don't stop because, well, I accidentally spilled coffee all over my pants and it made it look like I peed myself for a little bit. I don't care about that because I'm here to work. And guess what? I got my work done, even though everybody was laughing at me. You know, you can turn it into an empowering thing. You don't have to tell people that. They might think that it's suddenly the into the Rudy or some silly sports movie where they're supposed to get up and clap and you do a 360 and moonwalk out of the room. But you can internally use it as an empowering thing. Think about the times where you've had something where you've been embarrassed by spilling a drink on yourself or tripping in front of a group of people or saying poo-poomer on a podcast. No, <laughs> not poo-poomer. <laughs> But remember that you didn't let it stop you, that even though you were embarrassed and you 
kind of had to laugh it off a little bit and you went to bed and you cried a little bit maybe if you're me um you didn't let it stop you you still powered through and you still got the job done and you still were able to produce what you needed to do you still got to work you still did your job you still finished that piece of art that you were working on you were still an awesome individual and so if you turn those mistakes into triumphs it's such a positive way to empower yourself and to be generous to yourself. And yeah. taking ownership with laughter also helps. Right, for sure. Mm-hmm. So if they're bringing up the whole coffee thing and you can go, ha ha, oh my god, that ruined my outfit. But I think it was a good look on me. <laughs> right, if yeah. you can turn it around and get people to mm-hmm. laugh at it. Um, Just embrace it. Don't, mm-hmm. don't, don't show that it's getting to you because honestly yeah. that, that's going to make it, the entire interpretation of that event different from a lot of people. Yeah. So that's um, that's one thing. It's, you know, question your emotions when you when there are multiple interpretations of you know the thing that you just did. Go with the one that's the most useful, which is generally going to be not that oh everyone noticed that and oh my god I'm scum I should just leave. Usually it's going to be oh yeah probably no one noticed and it's if the few who did aren't going to give a shit. That's a much more charitable interpretation for yourself, and it's it's usually going to be one that's uh, you should probably go with. Um, now, once you've gotten over the question, you know, gotten through questioning your emotions, questioning the things that are driving your social anxiety, questioning your self-consciousness, another uh, thing you can do if you're still finding yourself being extremely anxious is just try to distract yourself from that anxiety a bit. And distraction, especially if you're you're about to have to give a speech or you're about to answer, you know, knock on the door to pick up your date or things like that, distraction can really help you deal with some of those more physical manifestations and the symptoms that Metrico was talking about a bit earlier. So one of these uh, that I like to do is pretty simple. You can do it anywhere, which is what I like. It's just engaging your brain very heavily in something. Uh, try to do uh, mathematics problems in your head if you are you know, are fairly good at math. Um, another really simple one is take uh, some large number, like a thousand, and just count back by sevens or sixes or some random number. And you know, as you're counting backwards, you're going to find yourself just focusing on that. You're not going to be as anxious with the thing you're about to have to do. And once you do those physical symptoms start to subside, you'll find you're able to perform a lot better and it'll kind of just be reassuring. You'll, you'll have that control that you're finding in that activity you're doing and you're not really as worried about the thing you're about to have to do, the performance you're about to have to put on, basically. I end up uh, internally singing Broadway songs. I'm very... <laughs> no, I really do. I do too. I'm laughing because I do the same thing. I'm very Disney songs mainly for me. Ah, I'm I'm very fond of the uh, "You're a Good Man" Charlie Brown musical, and there's a song in it called uh, "Book Report on Peter Rabbit," I believe is the title of it, or just the book report. And all the different characters have different versions of a book report on Peter Rabbit, and some of them compare Peter Rabbit to Robin Hood. Another one just uses a whole bunch of adjectives, and it's a fun song. And so whenever I'm feeling kind of nervous or anxious about something, I'll just kind of internally sing along with it. And it's good because there are a lot of words, and it makes me kind of bunker down and focus on what the song is. And I realize that after I get through a good chunk of it, that I'm no longer thinking about why I'm nervous, and I'm no longer really nervous to begin with. Yeah, and another distraction technique you can use is finding an object and just staring at that object and describing it in great detail to yourself. So let's say there's a grandfather clock in the room and you're trying to, you know, get over some social anxiety. You have to go into a party that's in the next room. Just look at that clock, you know, describe 
You know, what does it look like? What what exact color is it? What time does it show? You know, what are the other distinction characteristics of it? And just kind of list all those to yourself and really focus in on it. And again, that act of focusing and engaging your brain is going to distract you long enough from social anxiety that those physical symptoms are going to subside and you'll feel a lot more comfortable and confident participating in the activity you're about to do. Now, one thing that I do want to mention is that you don't want to use your phone as a means of distraction because that's another tool for you to just kind of shut the world around you out. You don't want to think, okay, well, in order to distract myself, I'm going to put on headphones and not talk to the, oh, crap, because you're just perpetuating the cycle. You want to make sure that whatever you're doing isn't invasive. It isn't separating you from the rest of the world. It's something where you can be easily interrupted and where you don't look out of place in whatever setting that you're currently in. So it's really important, you know, when you're addressing this uh, social anxiety as well, to not, as we we said a number of times, um, to not let yourself succumb to avoidance and uh, escape from social uh, situations that provoke your social anxiety, the triggering situations. And, you know, we've, we've quoted Franklin Vo a number of times on the podcast, and his great quote is to move in the direction of greatest courage. But that 100% applies in cases of social anxiety or social phobia. You really don't want to allow yourself to practice avoidance or escape if you can. Uh, try to catch yourself practicing um, like safety behaviors, things that you might do to just kind of avoid the situation. And it, Because when you allow yourself to indulge in those, they often turn into self-fulfilling prophecies. For example, if you do a lot of uh, drug and alcohol use in order to participate in a party, you're going to become dependent on those things in order to participate. And that can be a major problem because you think, oh, I really, I'm no good at parties unless I'm drunk. And that then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Building off of that, there are sometimes where people will say, oh, well, people only really enjoy me when I'm drunk. So you're always drunk. So that's the baseline that you establish. You've never really associated with other people when you're sober. So, of course, that's the only time that people like you because that's what you are all of the time. So you want to make sure that for drug use, for, you know, alcohol, you're not relying on that as a crutch in order to participate in social situations. I mean, everything in moderation, right? It's If you're going to a party, sure, have a few drinks, have fun, enjoy yourself, but don't rely on it to make you unglue from your social anxieties, from your social phobias, and to be a better person. Just be you. You don't need to rely on substances. Yeah. Now, if you catch yourself doing some of these other things we mentioned, like keeping yourself in the background or sticking only to the people you know very well at a party and not not allowing yourself to engage with any new people, trying to kind of make yourself low profile and avoid notice and avoiding eye contact, you know, force yourself to say, okay, I'm going to go to this party. I'm going to talk to one new person. I'm going to go to this party and I'm going to make eye contact with at least a couple mm-hmm. of people. I'm not going to get very drunk at this party. I'm only going to have two drinks. Uh, I'm not going to keep myself in the background. I'm going to make sure I walk to the middle of the room at least a few times, at least walk through the room a few times. So give yourself little things that just really just kind of, again, just force you to kind of muscle through it, get yourself in the mix. And, you know, the more you do that, it's kind of, you know, the way you get over an anxiety is by exposure therapy, is by just forcing yourself in the situation and seeing, hey, the world didn't end, I'm still alive, you know, and that's the thing. At the end of the day, it's really a matter of decatastrophizing the situation. Okay, I'm going to go walk through this party. What's the worst that could happen? 
Well, uh, I can't really think of any bad things that'll happen from walking through a party. You know, really, you have to, have to do that. Like, what's the worst that could happen here? Mm-hmm. I'm about to give a really important speech. What's the worst that could happen? I kind of flood the speech, I guess, and people maybe might laugh at me a couple times. At the end of the day, am I still going to be alive? Is it going to really matter? <laughs> like, you know, right. like, de- decatastrophize. Let's say you're going on a first date. Well, what's the worst that could happen? The date might not go well. Maybe this, this connection doesn't work out. Well, okay, is that the last person on earth? Again, it's not the, the date might not go well anyway. I mean, who knows? It's fine. You know, there'll be more dates. There'll be more people you might be interested in. Uh, so, you know, again, decatastrophize the situation. Think about what is the worst that could happen and get yourself to a point where even if the worst happens, you realize, hey, I'd still be okay here. Maybe I don't get the job. Maybe I don't get the date. Maybe I, you know, flub the phone call. Whatever. You'll still be alive at the end of that and you'll, there'll be more opportunities for success. Don't be so hard on yourself. For me, what helped, and I'm kind of a little bit perhaps too nerdy for my own good, I ended up making a role-playing game out of social interaction where I would have different missions that I would go on, different dailies for whatever I had to deal with. Okay, well, for this party, I'm going to try to speak to the following amount of people. I'm going to do... You know, I'm only going to have one or two drinks. I'm going to not be on the back wall. I'm going to be outgoing. And I would give myself experience points, or in my case, I had a little board that I would just kind of fill out a bar. And once I hit a certain point, I would treat myself to something that I thought was nice or something that I wanted and would hold off on getting. Um, Back then it was the Phoenix Wright games for the recently released DS. I, I I still play those games. I think they're fabulous. But back then, I had to keep purchasing the uh, cartridges, and so rather than just buying them on a whim, I would reward myself with them, and that really helps drive me to become a better me. So having some kind of a reward, a carrot and a stick, if you will, where if you perform well, if you put yourself out there, if you allow yourself to grow and to pop the bubble that is your existence and get out of your safety zone, then you should treat yourself. You should reward yourself. You should be generous to yourself because you are moving in the direction of greatest courage. And even if you are making mistakes, even if you are fucking it all up, you're still putting yourself out there and you shouldn't focus on the negative. You should focus on the fact that you are making progress. Like we've mentioned before, If you're starting a new hobby, if you're just starting out at art, you're going to suck a lot at first. I know that there's an episode of Adventure Time where Jake the Dog says, you're going to suck, paraphrasing, you're going to suck a lot at something at first. Art, writing, socializing with people, giving public speeches, you're going to, you're going to fail a lot when you first get started. You really are. You're going to see all of the things that you did wrong. You're going to hear about all the things that you did wrong. You're going to just constantly flub it up. But at the end of the day, if you allow your failures to to get in the way of your continued progress, then that's what you're going to be left with, your failures. Treat yourself generously. Treat yourself nicely. Allow yourself to continue to grow. Even if you continue making mistakes, You'll find that with time, with experience, with repetition, those mistakes become less and less and less. And you'll find ways to decatastrophize those mistakes. Oh, well, what if I'm giving a speech and I completely flub a word? If Oh, God, I, I, how will I react? Over time, you'll stop from just white-knuckled panic, shit-your-pants fear 
and you'll find that you can make fun of yourself. You can joke about it. You can reference it later on in the speech or like we do in the podcast where I fuck up on a word and then Vera is able to use that in a way where we're able to drive things forward. We're able to use our mistakes. We're able to become better. We don't become bitter. And that's really what the best thing you can do in order to overcome social anxiety is. You don't internalize these things. You don't fear making these mistakes. You welcome mistakes because that allows you to become a better individual. The first step to becoming better at something is first being really bad at something. Is that the... I think that's the Jake quote. Oh, okay. I'll be honest, I haven't seen that show in forever. I really should watch it again. But it's true, though. The first step of being good at something is being bad at it. And you're able to establish that baseline. And you'll, you, you won't need to continually move the field goals. You won't, you won't have to worry about, oh God, well, I have this objective and now that I've met it, I don't know what to... You'll know where you're going. You'll be able to get there at your own comfort. You'll be able to do it initially when it is uncomfortable. And you'll be more willing to put yourself into situations where you don't know what's exactly going to happen. A lot of social anxiety comes from the fact that you're fearing future events that probably are not going to happen. You're fearing future mistakes, future ridicule, future rejection. You don't have to live like that. Psychoeducation is a way that you can mitigate against that by learning about the psychology behind social anxiety, which is a chunk of what we've done tonight. You bring, you ground it. It stops being this thing that you experience and it becomes this thing that you know. It becomes something that you can fight because you recognize it. You have a definition. You have an idea. You're able to start recognizing ways in yourself that this is an issue. And you can beat the ever-loving shit out of it from that point on. You can make social anxiety your bitch. It's not going to be an immediate flip. It's not going to be you wake up and there's a switch and you're like, well, congratulations. I am now the most charming, suave individual on the planet. You know, everybody loves me. It's not going to be like that. It's not going to be an overnight thing. It's going to take hard work. It's going to take dedication. And it's going to take supporting yourself. Because if you rely on other people to support you through this, Unfortunately, you're giving up that internal locus of control. You need to continue to be in control of yourself whenever you're undergoing things like of this nature. There's, and Vera did mention this earlier, exposure is going to be the only way that you can do full immersion in the situation that you fear the most, that makes you the most anxious. And you might want to do it in controlled doses. I wouldn't recommend that if you're afraid of heights that you, you know, climb to the top of the Empire State Building and look directly down. You want to work yourself up gradually. It's it's, it's stairs. There are steps. If you're afraid of social gatherings, maybe don't go in the middle of a parade. Instead, go to small gatherings. Go to parties with friends. Work your way up to where you can only stand being with one or two people that you know very well to being able to go to maybe a local convention. Maybe there's some kind of an event going on, some kind of small concert that you want to go to that you've always been afraid to. 
Go to it. Enjoy yourself. Allow yourself to enjoy it. Allow yourself to make mistakes. Allow yourself to get messy. Allow yourself to scrape your knees and fall over and trip and be messy because that's what life is. You can't be afraid of living life. You can't be afraid of putting yourself out there. By exposing yourself to these situations, to these scenarios that you are terrified of, you'll continue to grow as an individual. If all of this doesn't work though, if the anxiety that you feel is too great, if the phobia is too much of a burden, Vera and I, yet again, we're not medical professionals. Yeah, well, I mean, Vero a kind of a bit kind of, of is a <laughs> but we're not psychologists. Correct, not in this field. Not least. in this field. Seek medical help from a specialist that is able to work with you. If you have a generalized anxiety disorder, if you have social anxiety disorder, if you have social phobia, cognitive behavioral therapy, like we spoke last week, tends to be about eleven to sixteen sessions. There is a plan. There is a goal. There is a way, and there is light. There are different medications that you can take that can be prescribed to you by a specialist, and they'll work with you to determine which one is best. We're not going to go into them because we don't know which one is going to be best for you. You need to speak to somebody that actually knows. There's always a way that you can work with yourself. And if you find that you're not able to do it on your own, there are people that can further empower you to be able to do this. There are ways that you can be balanced in order to be a more stable you. When you interact with other people, you leave memories. And that those memories become the, the monuments of your life once you're gone. They become what people remember. Because obviously they're memories. And you want to ensure that you're using the proper materials. That you're allowing yourself to use a strong foundation that you're allowing yourself to be mentally sound, and that the memories that you leave are long-lasting and for the right reasons. They're not of you being a lurker. They're not of you being a wallflower. They're not of you having issues outside of your control. They're not of you looking for approval from other people. They're of you being you. They're of you being an individual that has a personality, that has goals and dreams and ambitions and makes mistakes, but makes everybody laugh or, you know, is able to bring people together. Find the you that you want to be and allow yourself to grow into that. And really, that's been the point of Mental Health Month. You can't continue to miss opportunities to be a better you. If you continue to allow the world to pass you by, to move forward while you're standing still afraid of moving, you will be left behind because nobody can wait forever. Life isn't like the movies. Life isn't like the, the stories that we read. You have to keep moving forward. You have to keep putting one step ahead, you know, in front of the other. But the good news is that there's no time that's too late to make a move. In chess, it doesn't matter if you move first or if you move second. All that matters is that you make that first move. It doesn't matter how you make your first step. It doesn't matter if it's a misstep. It doesn't matter. Make the motion. Start making plans. You're going to make mistakes. It's inevitable. We all do. I make mistakes. I've made at least 25 in this show tonight alone. <laughs> Jeez, Metrico. 
You suck. You're going to have hecklers <laughs> like Koji. You're going to have people that laugh at you. You're going to have people that tell you that you can't do things. Have things that are realistic. Make a plan for yourself. If you need help, seek it. Don't be ashamed. No, knowing like G.I. Joe said is half the battle. Know what you are experiencing, but more importantly, know yourself. So with that, we're going to go ahead and move to tonight's question. And it's kind of a little bit <laughs> tangential to our topic tonight. And the question that we received is, uh, we received it from somebody on Telegram that requested it, it be anonymous. So we've kind of had to change a little bit of the question for it to be truly anonymous. But the question at its core is, how do you let somebody that's in a relationship know that you're into their partner, but you're not into them? Yeah, this is kind of a sticky situation, especially if you're just looking for maybe some casual fun with somebody, and then suddenly they tell you, oh, actually, I have to run that by my mate. And then you find out that, oh, well, they're actually in a monogamish type mm -hmm. relationship where they only do things together. Right. And so now you're in an awkward position of, oh, yeah, let's totally have that hot connection we were going to have. But suddenly you're not quite maybe so interested because you really were only interested mm -hmm. in the one partner and not the other. So... How would you handle that situation, Metrico? Well, I can tell you how other people have handled that situation in my life. I actually experienced that um, with somebody that decided that they would get into a relationship with a third party, uh, two guys, and uh, the third was a girl. And the girl really only cared for one, one of the guys. And it tore her apart. And it ended up breaking the entire relationship. They all hate each other now. Because there is a lot of lying and deceit and cheating going on. Because, well, I really care for you, but I don't care for your, your husband. So, um, she became a homewrecker. You don't want to do that. You don't want to put yourself in the situation where you allow your feelings for one of the, the people in the relationship to get in the way of their existing relationship. You have to say the thing that you don't want to say. You have to be completely honest. You have to say, listen... I like you, but I don't like like you. <laughs> you know, be a little bit more specific though. Say, I have, you know, I'm more interested in having fun with your mates. I'm more interested in building a connection with your partner. But unfortunately, I don't feel that connection towards you. Yeah, I, there's definitely different ways you can say it. And I might not be that blunt, but I, I completely agree with Metrico and what the, mm -hmm. the tone of voice saying. The, that's kind of one of my catchphrases that Metrico stole out of my muzz, which is the say the thing that you don't want to say. That's very, very important. But, um, you know, and frankly, this has happened to Koji and I a lot in our relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if you've ever seen Koji Fox, but um, he's incredibly hot. I have, like, the world's hottest husband. So uh, it's a very common plight faced by us that, frankly, oftentimes people people know that I'm fairly dummy and people know that Koji's, you know, a bit of a bottomy fox because he's a fox. Um, and there's a lot of tops who really want to get in Koji's pants. And yeah. because I'm a top, they're not so interested in me. Right. And what I find profoundly annoying is when people try to get to know me and try to like befriend me but in a very in a way that's totally transparently just to get into koji's pants and it's like super obvious and it pisses me off because it's a really shallow and like 
kind of bizarre relationship where like they're trying to get to know me just well enough to the point where I'll say yes to them fucking my husband. Hey, and then Vera. they give up, then they stop usually. Yeah. Hey Vera, how's it going? How's how's Koji? <laughs> Really? Yeah, really, Queen. Because like, and it's, it, it looks like they kind of assume that Koji and I don't talk to each other too. Because right. I usually know who he's talking to because like we're married and we don't hide things from each other for the most part. So like, if I, I can really obviously tell that someone's like clearly trying to get to know Koji and is like just saying bare minimum hellos to me to like get me to like be friendly, that's really transparent mm-hmm. and stupid. I would much rather a more direct approach of, hey, just, Vera, just want to let you know that I'm taking an interest in Koji. If that's something that bothers you, please let me know. But otherwise, do you mind if I, you know, flirt with your fox a little bit? I'd much rather that direct approach. Yeah. That at least shows me some respect. It's not just like trying to, although I feel like I'm trying to be, someone's trying to trick me. They're trying to dupe me into something. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I'll, I'll get Vera to kind of be my friend and then he'll just be okay with me doing stuff with his fox. Like... <laughs> No, that's ridiculous. Don't do that. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, I definitely would take that kind of a direct approach. I've done that to people in the past. You know, what I always say in that situation is, hey, I just want to let you know, um, you know, I'm speaking a lot to your mate. I think he's really awesome. I think we have a, a connection. I, If you don't mind, I'd really like to be able to pursue that connection with him. And I'm hoping we can at least be friends, you know. And that way, you're not, you're not, you're not apologizing. You're not saying, oh, I'm sorry, I don't want to fuck you. Like, that's really way too much... You have to, that's way beyond where you need to be going with that conversation. Right. You can set the tone without having to be like, yeah, and by the way, I don't want my dick anywhere near you. Like, By the that, way, I think you're gross and hideous. Yeah, that's not... The, but, you know, you, you very quickly set the tone. Hey, I'm really interested in your mate. I want to, I'd want i be interested in pursuing a connection with them, whether that's sexual or romantic. You can clarify that if you want. But, you know, I'm hoping the two of us could at least be friends. If that's mm-hmm. And if you'd like to talk to me more, if you would like to get to know me a bit better in order to be comfortable with me pursuing your mate uh, in that way... Please let me know. I'm totally willing to communicate with you. But, you know, again, you're making it clear that your interest is in the mate, not in them, without being a shit about it or making it really obvious that you're not interested in them. Yep. And, and if they, at that point, say, hey, maybe all three of us could do stuff, then you could say either a white lie, which is that, oh, I'm not really into group stuff, which you, if you want to you go that route, you can. I don't always encourage people to tell white lies like that, but I, that's a very common tactic. You just kind of fudge a little bit and say, oh, I'm not really in a group play. I was really just hoping to do some things one-on-one with your mate. Um, if you're not comfortable with that, then you can say, oh, you know, I'm really flattered that you're interested in me that way, but I don't really think we have that, the same connection that you and that my, your mate and I have. And so I don't really, I wouldn't really feel comfortable in a, in a, in a group situation mm-hmm. with you guys. And if that's, if that means that you're not comfortable with me doing things with your mate, I totally understand, but I just want to be transparent about that. And then, yeah, it's not necessarily the most fun conversation to have because you are, in a sense, rejecting that person, and rejection is never fun. But you never want to be in a situation where you let yourself just kind of go along with it because in that situation, you're kind of just having, in a way, pity sex. And as we've said before, pity sex never really ends well. Plus, during that threesome, they're totally going to pick up on the fact that you're way more into their mate than you are them, and it's going to be bad because it's very hard to hide the fact that you're faking interest in them. You're going to be kind of half-hearted about it. It's not going to be enthusiastic, and you're going, especially if you if you agree to a threesome and then just have sex with their mate and kind of like give them a pat on the back and it's like the participation badge, like, like oh yeah, half- you you were in the room, good job. <laughs> Enjoy your half-hearted hand job. Yeah, yeah, and we're done. Yeah, um, that's going to be noticed, and they're going to know that you're just interested in their mate, and so you're mm-hmm. it really it's just going to and it'll probably cause problems in their relationship. So. You don't want to do that to somebody. So if you're, be honest, don't, and if you you need to tell a white lie, tell a white lie like, I'm not into group stuff. Don't, don't uh, 
you know, just go along with the threesome that you're not interested in. That's not a good idea. Precisely. So, I mean, we both agree. Say the thing that you don't want to say, but you need to say. Yep. And if... Don't hide your motives, because that's hard to recover from. Like... Yeah, if you seem shysty and you go about it in a shysty way, um, if, again, you, that'll be detected. Like, when people approach Koji in that way, I basically totally lose interest in that happening, even if it's something Koji is interested in, because the way they approached me was so underhanded, mm-hmm. I don't trust them with my husband anymore. Right. If they approached me directly and said, hey, I'd really like to do things with your fox, like, is that cool? At least then I'd, you know, we'd be able to have a conversation. Right, and things like, I respect you and your relationship, and mm-hmm. I'd love to get to know you too. Right, exactly. That, that shows respect, and it shows that you're not just there to use the person that you're interested in and completely not acknowledge the partner. This is weird. Right. Fortunately, going the other way, Coach and I don't have that problem because he's a cuck fox and lets me do whatever the heck I want. So that, you know, that works. But Bark. <laughs> <laughs> not everyone's that kinky, unfortunately. Uh, or maybe fortunately. <laughs> Depending on your perspective. <laughs> but... So we're in agreement there, and hopefully you're able to have that conversation, and hopefully everything turns out fine. Good luck. Absolutely. Now, as I mentioned, this has been Mental Health Month. We decided that we would do another themed month, because we've gotten a lot of really great response, and we decided, hey, we've been talking about doing a kink month. We should probably actually do a kink month. So, June... In the United States and the Northern Hemisphere, it's starting to be summer. It's starting to get hot. Everybody's starting to get a little bit sweaty. It's time to talk about kinks. It's time to get dirty and gritty and down into it. We're going to answer questions about things that people are embarrassed to ask. We're going to talk about ourselves a little bit and things that we enjoy. As I just mentioned earlier, Koji and I are kind of in a kinky relationship. Mm -hmm. We do some dominance and submission. We do some cuckolding. So it's going to be it's going to be an interesting month. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about things that are fairly vanilla to things that are I mean we're gonna go from mild to wild. <laughs> so just and I hopefully everybody enjoys it. Um, if you have questions about kinks, about even fetishes, what's the difference between a kink and a fetish? You'll find out next week. But ask questions. If you have questions about I don't know, ethical BDSM, safe BDSM, about whether water sports is ick or squick or ew or ooh. And this is where you get to ask about the other kind of CBT. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I get to talk about cock and ball torture. That's going to be great. Now, you know, just as a note, just because we discuss something doesn't mean that we necessarily enjoy it. We're going to discuss a lot of things. We're not endorsing them. We're not saying that we practice them. Just kind of want to put that out there because I realize that I sound really excited while talking about cock and ball torture. That's not really something that I fairly enjoy all that much. You bust my balls every week, Metrico. Well, yeah, but that's, I mean, come on. Who wouldn't do that? (laughs) I mean, oh, the look on your face when it happens is so delightful. Mm. Oh, mer. Pinching my nipples. Anywho. So, next week we're going to do an introduction to kink. We're going to talk about what what kinks are, what fetishes are, what the difference between the two are. Where they come from. Yeah. And how to, you know, practice them in a way that's good for your relationship and good for you. How to disclose them to your partners, all that good stuff. So, it's going to be a fun one. So, please ask questions. I mean, really, this is your time. A lot of anonymous questions. Feel free. Give us calls. We will answer 
I mean, if you have a question about a kink that we don't, we will find a way to answer it. And, uh, you know, again, how do people contact us, Metric Code, to ask us all these wonderful questions? We have a contact page on our website at feralattraction.com, and we have ways of contacting us that include a Telegram group, a Twitter, a Last.fm. Sorry, I got really breathy. <laughs> and you a Last.fm? I think you mean an Ask.fm. I don't know. Well... You can. If you want to scrabble us, that's a different thing. You you can scrabble us. <laughs> that's my fetish. We have a words with friends account. <laughs> you can you can hit us up on Zanga. <laughs> oh my god! Shout out to my '90s kids. Whoop whoop. Um, but no. Uh, you can contact us on Telegram, on Twitter, on Ask FM. We have Reddit. A... I mean, you're hard pressed to find a place we're not actually. Ooh, not. Indeed. <laughs> I, I was going on a roll. I Facebook, was... semaphore, carrier pigeon. <laughs> Any way that you... There are so many to choose from. You, there's a form on our website that you can hit us up on anonymously. If you want us to contact you back, please put an email. Otherwise, we will just be screaming into the darkness. That is my soul. Heckle. Heckle, heckle. I'm heckling you. <sighs> Interrupting Metrico is kind of a pastime here at Feral Attraction. I'm not sorry. You will be. If you... He's going to make me sorry. No, no. (laughs) If you enjoy the show... (laughs) Oh, no. I'm in trouble. He's not acknowledging me. Please leave a review and rate us on iTunes. It helps us in our rankings, and it makes our show a little bit more visible. Um, we also are on the Google Play Music streaming podcast, Emporium Extraordinaire. Um, you can find a link to that on our website as well if you would prefer to stream our content using your Android device. So with that, we're looking forward to Kink Month next month. Thank you for joining us this month for Mental Health Month. I'm Metrico. And I'm Vera the Science Collie. And you're in trouble, Koji. <laughs> Be well. (laughs) 